Well, good morning, everyone. Happy 4th. It is good to be together this morning as we are moving along in our series, Five Prayers That Matter. You can open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 18. Um, If you don't know where to find Genesis, first book of the Bible, so it's very easy. You open up to the front of the Bible, you get to Genesis chapter 18. Now, I have always been a fan of courtroom drama-type movies. I grew up, watched a lot of different things. One thing that was kind of strange that I used to watch, even at the age of five, was the show Matlock. Anybody watch Matlock out there? I'm sure some of you have. you got to understand, this is pre-Netflix era, okay? So, I am... Uh, Daytime television, there's nothing else on but Matlock, and for whatever reason, this show captivated me. I used to watch it all the time. Uh, I've watched a lot of other courtroom dramas. Probably one of my favorites of all time was one I watched when I was 12 or 13, A Time to Kill. Do you guys remember that one? Uh, It has uh, Samuel L. Jackson, Sandra Bullock, Matthew McConaughey, Kevin Spacey, and It explores some of the complex issues of justice. It asks some big questions of justice. For example, what recourse does a man have if it appears that the justice system is flawed? Is vigilantism appropriate? Uh, Can the case be made that a person may stop, uh, lose their sense with reality, and thus could, should be acquitted of what would otherwise be considered a crime? Will true justice take place, or will some dissatisfying miscarriage of justice take place? And so this movie and movies like it unpack this theme because we all have this innate desire to want to see justice happen. Uh, We want to see right win out over might. We want to see the world be a fair place. Now, in our own culture, and I think that one of the reasons we celebrate American independence is because this has been a culture that has sought to establish itself on a principle of justice. Now, have we always lived up to our ideals? Absolutely not. But in our culture, we have the conversation around justice often in the courtroom setting. You have two sides standing before a judge arguing the merits of their position, the flaws of the other side's position. And whether it's in front of a jury or peers or in front of a judge, all of the evidence is heard, it's weighed, and then some type of a verdict is delivered. Now let me ask you a question when it comes to justice. What happens when your complaint, though, is with the judge? What happens when you're questioning questioning his or her fairness? And then might I be so bold as to ask, What happens when we question the fairness of the judge of the universe? God. Can we put God on trial? I've heard people do this. They ask pretty big questions of God. They ask questions like, if God is good, why does God allow evil to happen? Why does it appear like good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Why would God allow suffering to take place in the world? And I got to tell you, I can't unpack all of those questions today that would take a sermon for each one of those questions. And our discussion this morning is with regard to prayer. We're interested in how do we grow in prayer and what kind of prayer matters. 
But I think that this conversation is important because if we're going to engage God with meaningful prayer, prayer that matters, we have to have a trust or a confidence in God. As Harry was talking about, hope fuels prayer. But if I don't have confidence in who God is, how can I pray to God with hope? And so, it's important to know this morning that God knows you have big questions, and God takes our questions seriously. In fact, as we look at Genesis chapter 18, we see a situation where God lowers himself and he deals with Abraham's big questions. It's incredible. So let's pick up the story. Now, just prior to where we're going to pick up, the story begins with three men who happen to be God and two angels meeting with Abraham. And these angels, or the Lord, tell Abraham and Sarah that they are going to have a child within a year of that time of their meeting. Sarah finds the whole thing incredulous. She laughs. The story takes an ominous turn, though, in verse 16 of chapter 18, when it says that the men look down to Sodom. And then God has this internal dialogue. Look at verses 17 and forward, and you'll see the dialogue Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now here's what's incredible about this dialogue. Nowhere else In all the pages of Scripture, do we see God having an internal dialogue with Himself where He is talking aloud? Of course, God doesn't actually talk aloud to Himself. He doesn't need to weigh a decision within Himself like you or I would. But the Bible tells us this conversation that's taking place to help us better relate to God. It's a, a literary device called anthropomorphism. In fact, God knows all things. As A.W. Tozer said, God knows all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, every unuttered secret. So he doesn't need to have a conversation like this, but it's help us to cue in that God wants to show something about himself to Abraham. And what is that? Well, God wants the man who would represent him, whose children would come to represent him, to realize that God is reasonable. He's not capricious. He doesn't make snap decisions and execute justice just because he feels like it today. But he's measured. He goes about things in a judicious manner. Now he expresses his intent to Abraham, verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not... I will know, again, another example of anthropomorphism, because God doesn't actually need to go on site to see what has happened. This is a predetermined outcome. He knows what the sin is in this city, but again, he wants Abraham to see that he is reasonable, that he's just. Now, that word outcry, I would like you to hone in on that word for a minute. The word is used in Scripture to describe crimes that caused the oppressed 
and the brutalized to cry out. And so those cries go up to God. We, we, we saw that in Genesis chapter 4 when Abel was killed by Cain. It says that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. And, and when you think about that, that should actually be a comforting thought because I don't know about you, but sometimes I grow weary and exhausted with the thought that there is so much violence that takes place all over the world. It could happen in places that have uh, justice systems like our own that are more advanced, but other places where it just seems like violence happens, no one hears about it, no one knows about it. And the, the, the beautiful thing is, is that we don't live in a universe where those things go unheard or unseen. Why? Because God sees them. God hears them. And God intends to deal with them. Lord, you know the hopes of the helpless. Surely you will hear their cries and comfort them. Psalm ten sixteen. Now, in the case of this conversation with Abraham, the Lord says that he intends to deal with a society. He's not talking about individual crimes that he intends to bring justice to. He says that the city of Sodom needs to be dealt with. When you look at the Scripture and the way that God deals with society, there tends to be two ways that he deals with society. The first way, and I would say the normal way that God deals with society, is through His righteous remnant. Uh, His righteous people living out the moral values and principles of God shine like a light. They, They season the culture like salt. And they influence that culture for good towards God's purposes. But what happens when a society has just gone too far? When, when the corruption within the society is ubiquitous, there's no place that's untouched by the corruption. I, I think of it kind of like this. Um, when, when you're in a car wreck and, and an insurance adjuster comes out and, and assesses the situation, when the damage of the car is fixable, the adjuster writes a check to have the car fixed. However, if the car is damaged beyond repair, the adjuster declares the car totaled. So as righteous judge, there are times when God declares that a society is totaled. The evil is just too pervasive. There's just too much broad acceptance of things like oppression and brutality and and murder and, and sexual sin. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do I know when that's happened? How do I know when a society is totaled? And I I think the answer to that question is we don't. Uh, That is the righteous judge's job to assess. In fact, when it comes to our interaction with uh, society, we need to take a, a similar posture that Abraham takes in this passage. And we'll see moving forward that he seems to love the society, pray for it, and even seeking to influence it for good. In fact, as we move forward, after Abraham learns what God intends to do, he engages in a dialogue with God, and I would say that that dialogue is prayer. Because anytime we converse with God, that's prayer. And this prayer that Abraham has before God, I would say, is beautiful yet flawed. It's beautiful because 
he exhibits a godlike compassion for, toward Sodom. It's flawed, though, because Abraham just doesn't have all of the information. He is under certain assumptions, and, and those assumptions are not correct. So when you have a big question of God, when God is on trial in your mind or in your heart, how might you respond? And really, there's, there's two tendencies. There's a constructive response and a destructive response. Now, the destructive response I would submit to you is to grow critical towards God. This leads towards the cynical mindset. You begin to question God's motives and God's abilities. So God goes on trial, and you're not really interested in hearing what God has to say about the situation. Your mind's made up already. It makes me think of a movie uh, called Patch Adams that has Robin Williams in it. It was It's a really um, intense movie in some ways. He was a medical student who had a philosophy of medicine where he believed that jokes and humor were very important when it came to the practice of medicine, and this was his idealism. Well, his idealism breaks down when his girlfriend is murdered by one of his psychotic patients. And as Patch stands on a high cliff, pondering suicide, he has this monologue with God. So answer me, please. Tell me what you're doing. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. Maybe you should have just uh, had a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion Now, you see what Patch is doing there in that monologue with God? He's taking the robes off of God and he's putting the robes upon himself. Uh, We do this. Sometimes we think or even sometimes dare to say, if I were God statements. You know, if I were God, I would, if you were God, you would what? John Walton writes this. He says, Whenever we raise questions about God's justice, we tacitly suggest that we would be more just if given the chance. When we question God's love, we imply that we could be more loving. His grace, His mercy, His patience, name whatever attribute you will. If we think we can do better uh, than better than God, We have a defective view of God, and not to mention an unrealistic conceit and a superficial and simplistic knowledge of the problem. You see, friends, if I were God, I would make a terrible mess of this world. That that road, cynicism, is a road to nowhere. It literally takes you nowhere. Have you ever met a happy cynic? I haven't. Let's think of the constructive. Abraham shows us that, and he shows us that the constructive approach to our big questions is a prayerful dialogue. Verses 23 through 25. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now that is a big question. 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Another big question. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Again, a big question. Now, basically, Abraham is asking God, God, are you going to lump everyone together in this city? God, I know there's good people, and I, I know there's bad people. I know there's righteous people, and there's wicked people. Are you just going to kind of pile them all together and deal justice to everyone with no distinction? Now, he's engaging in this dialogue. And again, I want us to notice a couple of points about this prayer. The first thing you notice is Abraham's compassion. I believe that Abraham's praying because he does have a heart for people. He has a God-like compassion. He doesn't stand up high in the mountain overlooking Sodom with God and saying, I knew that Sodom was a wicked place. I told Lot to never move there. My nephew just never listens to me. That, that society has been so far gone for so long, I can't even deal with it anymore, God. No. In fact, I would submit to you that we should never, ever take an attitude towards society like that. God doesn't call us to be the types of Christians who stand up and start ticking off the box on all the things that are going wrong and, you know, we're so far gone, we're never going to head in the right direction again. That's not our call. God's the only one who can decide or determine what's going wrong right or wrong with a society. Society is far too complex for me to make those kind of value judgments. So what is our call? It's compassion. It's praying for society. It's saying, God, fix what is broken. We can see what's broken, and we can pray into that. Abraham also, I said to you, is flawed in his thinking. Why is it flawed? Well, he's under some assumptions. And you know what happens when we make assumptions? Assumptions send us off in places that we shouldn't go, right, with our mind. His assumption is that there are 50 righteous people in Sodom. And again, society is complex. Uh, I make all kinds of assumptions about society. The only one who can really see the big picture and know and understand everything is God. And it tells us in the Scriptures that God reveals some things to us while other things God keeps to Himself because that's His sovereign right to do so. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses tells us this, doesn't he? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those are His mysteries. Those are His sovereign purposes. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so the one thing that I can always assume when I'm making assumptions is that God's character will hold up as He has revealed it in the Scriptures. All the other assumptions I make about God are likely to be flawed. Now let's move forward with one more point on prayer. Look at verse 26 where the Lord says, and I'll summarize it, if Sodom has 50 righteous, of course, I'll spare it. Now, Abraham, of course, 
wants to see if he can up the ante a little bit. He wants to whittle down the numbers a little bit with God. And before he does this, though, I want you to notice what he says about himself in verse 27. He says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. You see, friends, the difference between cynicism and prayerful dialogue with God where we're asking and wrestling with our big questions is reverence. Reverence. You see that in this. Abraham belittles himself to magnify God. He quotes essentially Genesis 2-7 where he says that I was created from the dust. He's looking at God and acknowledging a contrast between himself and the high and holy God who is the creator. Now, I got to tell you, when I hear prayer taught on sometimes, it borderlines upon the irreverent when we come and we talk about God. People say things like, oh, you can say anything to God. He's got big shoulders. He can handle it. And while I'm sure that's true, that God does have big shoulders and he can handle it, does that necessarily mean that we should say just anything to God? You see, I agree that we can talk to God about anything. Last week, we looked at the idea of what if you're angry with God? And I think there's a a righteous, reverent way to have that conversation. And we're looking right now at Abraham asking his big questions of God. But remember, he is still God. He is holy, which means that he is set apart. So there's a, a reverent way to have the conversation with God. And we see that in the book of Job. Do you remember what Job's wife told him to do? In Job chapter 2, she said, just say anything to God. She said what? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Basically, be done with this whole reverence thing, Job. Say what you need to say and move on. Job, his response is remarkable even after losing everything. He says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And listen to what the Bible says. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That is that delicate balance. When we we might have a big question for God, but at the same time, we're not just going to say anything to God. So friends, we can ask him our big questions, but we still must maintain the attitude of reverence. Now the lingering question remains, why prayer are big questions? If we know that we're not going to fully understand why pray at all, if we know that God's all sovereign and he's always executing his will, doing his intended purpose and plan, why pray at all? I would submit to you that the purpose of the prayer dialogue is two things. One, to gain better understanding, even if that understanding is incomplete, and two, to have a deeper trust in God. See, the more that we pray to God, the more we become confident of who God is, of his character. And you see, God's not afraid when we come to him with our big questions because he has nothing to hide. 
When Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The obvious answer to the question is yes, he will do what is just. So prayer then is that space where our perspective shifts. Now, a perspective shift changes how we think about a situation, right? Remember, if we're coming in with a a big assumption, sometimes we need something to change our perspective. And perspective is a crazy thing when you think about how quickly your mind can change when you see a situation differently. Think of it like this. Imagine, for example, you receive a letter like this from your daughter away at college. Dear mom and dad, just thought I'd drop you a note to clue you in on my plan. I've fallen in love with a guy named Jim. He quit high school after grade 11 to get married. And just about a year ago, he was divorced. We've been going together for two months, and we plan to get married in the fall. Until then, I've decided to move into his apartment. By the way, I think I might be pregnant. At any rate, I dropped out of school last week, although I'd like to finish college sometime in the future. Now, after you pick yourself up off the floor from fainting, you look at the letter again, and you see that there's another side. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know that everything I've just written so far in this letter is false. None of it is true. But it is true that I got a C- in French and flunked math. And is it also true that I'm going to need some money to pay my tuition? You see how perspective changes things? Now, I would be having a conversation with my daughter after that and saying, don't you ever write me a letter like that again and do your grades, take care of your schooling. But I'd also be writing that check. So likewise... God shifts Abraham's perspective in Genesis chapter 18. They begin to have this dialogue back and forth. Abraham begins with 50. God says, not for 50. Then he says, what about 45 people? God says, nope, not going to destroy it for 45. What about 40 people? God, "Uh uh-uh, won't do it if there's 40 people. What about 30 people? God, nope, I won't do it for 30 people. God, 20, give me 20. Will you do it for 20? And he's like, nope, I'm not going to do it for 20. We're beginning to start feeling like we're at an auction right now, aren't we? And then Abraham comes in with his final number, 10. Suppose, God, there are 10 righteous people in this society. Will you destroy it if there are 10? And God ends the debate. He says, not even for 10. Here's the perspective change. Sodom doesn't even have 10 people in all of that society who are righteous. It is that far gone when, when God goes in there, He actually demonstrates Himself to be just, to be righteous. He, he pulls the, the righteous people out of the city. And you know how many people that is? Four. Only one of the people looks back. So only three righteous people were found in all of Sodom. Friend, it turns out that we see the problem of evil much differently than God does. 
This is a repeated theme in the Scriptures. I've shared this before, but we tend to think of evil as this sliding scale of morality. We say things like, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So-and-so is cheating on their taxes and they're not faithful to their spouse. And I've certainly never murdered anyone, as if that's the, the standard, right? If you haven't committed murder, then you're fine, right? And then we, we kind of look in terms of people that were like, oh, they're really, really moral. Like you, on the scale of morality, like really close to Jesus over here, you have Billy Graham. And then the personification of evil, of course, is Adolf Hitler over there. And, and we're somewhere closer to Billy Graham, of course, than we are toward Adolf Hitler. So when we say to God, God, I wish that you would take care of evil in this moment, what we're really saying to God is, I hope that you will take care of everything that is more evil than I am on the scale of morality. And then we take God to trial. And what we do when we take Him to trial is we look at all the situations that are happening on that side of the scale and we say, why doesn't God act? in those situations. And then any time that he deals with something on what we perceive to be this side of the scale, we say, why is God being so harsh? But you know when we breathe our last breath, we will stand in front of the righteous judge and he will say, I am not the one on trial here. You are. And when we go on trial, he's going to say, let's look at your thoughts. Let's look at your heart. Let's look at your motivation. Let's look at your contribution to the problem of evil. In fact, in the Scriptures, we go on trial. When you look at Psalm chapter 14, verses 1-3, through 3, the Lord says, there is no one, no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the question is, is what if the righteous judge did do what is just right now? And the answer is that we would be weighed, we would be measured, and we would be found wanting. And the Scripture says that the consequence of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. That's the penalty. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. But here's what's incredible about God. Yes, God is just. He will not allow wickedness to go on without being addressed. But you know what? is amazing about God is his natural bent or disposition is not towards just rigidly executing justice right on the spot. No, it's towards mercy. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? The Lord declares. No! But I would rather that they would turn and do what is righteous. Now imagine that you are standing in court for high treason. The penalty is death. The cases have been argued. The evidence has been weighed. It has proven you guilty. You even know in your own heart, even though you've declared not guilty, that you are indeed 
guilty of the crime. And the judge stands up before the courtroom, declares his verdict, guilty of high treason and sentenced to death. But in the moments that follow, something quite beyond your expectations happens. The judge takes off his robe, he goes over and he whispers into the ear of the bailiff, Instead of the bailiff coming over to you and handcuffing you and taking you off the death row, he turns the judge around and places the cuffs upon the judge. And as the judge is walking by you, he looks over at you with a compassionate look and says, I am going to take your penalty for you. I am giving you a second chance. Friends, in the Bible, that's just what Jesus did for us. Colossians chapter 2, the Word says you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for He forgave all your sins. He canceled the, the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. So if you've ever questioned God's goodness, you have to look at the cross. Because it's there at the cross that we see His bent towards grace and mercy. We see that He's willing to die in our place to take the penalty upon Himself. Here's reality. When you breathe your last breath, you will be standing before the Creator of the universe. And there's two ways that you can stand before Him. Two postures that He can take. Either one, you can come before Him and say, I'm just going to rely on my own merit, my own goodness, my own abilities. And you will stand before Him as judge. Or, you can throw yourself at His mercy and say, I am a sinner. My verdict my right judgment is death. And I am just looking to you as my Savior. So judge or Savior, which do you prefer? And the Bible says that if you want to stand before Him as Savior, you have to put your faith in Jesus. You see, we've got a lot of big questions for God, but in this one life, in this 70 or 80 years that we have to live, He's got one big question for you. Will you trust Jesus? Well, this morning, I want to tell you that you can. The Bible talks of this as grace. It's God's free gift of mercy to you. It says if you put your faith in Him, that you will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I'd like to invite you to do so right now by joining in with me in a prayer. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the only Savior in the risen Lord. I know that there are many ways that I have not followed your will, that I've sinned. But I also believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead. And in the best way I know how, I put my faith in you. I believe that you died for me. I believe that because you rose again from the dead, that I can rise again to new life in you. In your name I pray. Amen.